0: Well, we continue to be in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to the healing of the centurion's servant. So we're in chapter seven, we're gonna begin with verse one, but we're also gonna be in Second Kings chapter five for a pretty good chunk of our time too. And the reason for this is that Jesus himself pairs the passage in Second Kings five uh, with this one here in Luke chapter seven. So if you can have fingers in both places, that would be great. All right, let me read for us, starting in Luke chapter 7, with verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is one, the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus, Jesus went with them and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer over this word. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed is a great friend to us, who is our master and our teacher, who continues to work in us diligently day by day through his spirit. And we pray that that spirit would be among us now as one people, as we meditate and think through this ancient but good word, that it would... Be a word that we listen to, a word that we believe, a word that we walk by, and a word by which we may make good judgments. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 1 tells us that after Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So we are picking up things just after Jesus had finished preaching the sermon on the plains. And Luke is is signaling to us to pay attention, to see who will respond to Jesus' preaching, that is, who will hear Jesus. Now remember in 627, Jesus had said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. So the pattern of the righteous that we've already talked about once, and that we've been talking about the last several weeks, and particularly in conversation with Psalm 1 from last week, is that God speaks... His people listen to His voice, they do what He says, and in turn learn to make evaluations and judgments in light of Him. That's what maturity or growing into maturity is. And this was the pattern established with Adam in the garden, something that he actually rejected by listening to the voice of the serpent. And as we talked about last week, every human, every human is defined by the pattern of listening to some voice, or another, or sometimes many different voices doing what that voice says and in turn judging and making evaluations in light of that voice. Every human does this. So if it's not the voice of God, a human will listen to some other voice and will in turn structure his life by it. It's like what Jesus says in 647, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them is like a man who builds his house on the rock. So everyone... Everyone builds their house on some foundation or another. Only those who have built their house on Christ, on the Word of God made flesh, will actually have a sure foundation. So, for example, wisdom, as the Bible thinks about it, doesn't merely involve knowing how things work, though it certainly does involve that. At root, wisdom is exemplified And the person that listens to God and orders his life by way of the Word in Jesus. As the Proverbs say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And as you read through the Proverbs, those two ways are depicted as Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, both of which call out to whoever will listen. And one is the way of life and one is the way of death, though that second way, because of spiritual blindness, doesn't seem like folly at all. It seems like wisdom. And as Proverbs 30, verse 12, as I've already mentioned, as it puts it, there are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. It's a very stark image when you really start to dwell on it. Or it's like what Paul talks about in Romans 1. For although they knew God, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, whereas... In the ancient world, the spiritually blind often worship false gods in the form of animals and whatnot. Uh, You certainly see that happening in Egypt in the book of Exodus or you can think of Baal, for example, a God that shows up a lot in in the Old Testament who was the God of thunder. Now, we in the so-called modern West, we know better than this, right? We we don't worship uh, animals so much as we worship humans that Without a hint of irony, we often call idols, even as we most often just worship the self. And that's really kind of the weirdness of our times. We don't look outside of ourselves to worship, we look inwardly. And in turn, we have made ourselves the object of our desires and worship. Well, so Jesus has given this teaching in the hearing of the people, and He then enters Capernaum, where he has already had some ministry success in chapter 4, where he had cast out a demon from, the man, from a man in the midst of a synagogue, no less, if you remember that event. And people were all amazed by it and said, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. That's all in the context here. So with chapter 7, there he is back in Capernaum, and Jesus encounters a Gentile. And not just any Gentile, but a Roman centurion of some means. Now, just for historical context, the Romans, as you I'm sure know, were the dominant empire of that time. And they were akin to what the Greeks and the Persians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians uh, were before the Romans. Now, the difference is that the Roman Empire far outstretched their predecessors. And in the West, actually, we could still feel their effects to this day. It's why, for example, cities like Rome and Paris, Moscow and London all viewed themselves uh, of varying degrees as versions of a new Rome. They self-consciously compared themselves to Rome. In Jesus' day, the Romans had conquered Judea and kept a, a small military force in place in order to exact taxes and revenue for Rome. And in the ancient world, One of the key reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the key reasons for conquering other peoples or other nations was to get rich off of them. You took their stuff. So this puts into context why tax collectors were so hated by the Jewish people. I mean, they levied heavy taxes on their own people in order to sustain not just the Roman military presence in Israel, but the Roman Empire more generally. So tax collectors got rich through essentially legalized theft of their own people in order to make the Romans even richer. So it's the exact opposite of the whole Robin Hood story. So just as people hated Matthew the tax collector, and and rightly so, we would expect the Jews to hate a Roman centurion even more so. However, the details of chapter 7 make it clear that this centurion was a God-fearer. That is, even though he was not a Jew, he had converted to Judaism and had placed his faith in the God of Israel. Now, this was not unusual, even for the Old Testament. Uriah the Hittite, famously Bathsheba's murdered husband, was not a Jew and yet he was counted among David's mighty men and was a trusted Uh, part of David's inner circle. The Pharisees, for example, took great pride in making Gentile converts. The confusion that that modern people have sometimes, or I should say modern Americans have, is that they, they think because the Jews were set apart in order to be a light to the nations and through whom the promised Redeemer would come, that meant that only Jews were saved. And that's not right. That's not right. After all, Moses' father-in-law, like Melchizedek, worshiped the true God and basically functioned as a priest king even as he was clearly not Jewish. It's like what God says to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Israelites were not the only people who were saved in the Old Testament. No, God set them apart as a priestly line through whom God would bring forth the Redeemer. And so people like Rahab and Ruth, so a Canaanite and a Moabite respectively, rightly understood that. And they sided with Israel's God. It's like what Ruth said to Naomi. These are famous words. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Now, sometimes that's quoted at weddings, should not be. Or or that, man, they really were good friends, weren't they? You're missing the point. That's not what that's about. That's not merely Ruth loving her mother-in-law. That's Ruth putting her faith in the God of Israel. Because those who bless Abraham, God will bless. Well, that's what's on view with this Roman God-fearer centurion who clearly loved the God of Israel and had gone so far as building a synagogue in Capernaum, despite, like Rahab and Ruth, being a natural enemy of the Jewish people. And so, because he was a God-fearer and was attached to one of the synagogues in Capernaum, it makes sense that the centurion had heard about Jesus and was more than a little curious about him. So, he sends elders of the synagogue, presumably where he worshiped, to, to Jesus, and it's clear that they don't go under compulsion, as in, he's a centurion, we have to do it. No, they want to go, and in turn, they give a good report about the centurion to Jesus. They say he loves our nation and built our synagogue, which seems to indicate both that as a, a good god he kept the purity laws, he kept kosher. But maybe, as Jesus indicates in Matthew 23, verse 15, in his judgment on the Pharisees, maybe they were proud of their convert and thought Jesus should therein help him. After all, they said he deserves to be helped. Well, in verses 6 through 8, we read that when Jesus was not far off, the centurion sent friends to Jesus, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. So, the centurion did not presume to be worthy to come ask Jesus for anything and instead sent the elders of the synagogue who he perhaps assumed would surely have a better standing with Jesus than he did simply because they're, they're Jewish elders. And in some sense, he was most likely keeping to Jewish practices at this time that taught that Gentiles and Jews could not mix. And so a Jew certainly would not go into a Gentile's house. And you see this, this same Uh, Cultural practice at work, for example, in Acts chapter 10 between Peter and Cornelius or with the Sanhedrin who refused to enter into Pilate's uh, residence. That said, uh, separation between Jew and Gentile is not part of the original laws found in Torah. That needs to be said. Otherwise, for example, Boaz would have been in sin with Ruth. But I think more so for the centurion, it was enough for Jesus to simply speak the word. Just speak the word because he knows that Jesus' word is uniquely authoritative. Now remember, previously in Capernaum, after that exorcism in the synagogue, the Jewish people wondered about Jesus' word and where his authority and power came from. Here, the centurion who is a man with some authority, recognizes the far greater authority that Jesus had, and in an attitude of humility really akin to John the Baptist, does not think he is worthy to even be seen by Jesus, let alone to have Jesus in his home. And what's so telling about this is that that this was not the posture of the Jewish elders who sought Jesus out for him, let alone Jesus' hometown synagogue. So, you need to ask the question, who in this passage is the one who hears Jesus? In response, Jesus marveled at the centurion. And usually it's the crowds that marvel at Jesus. But here, Jesus marveled at the centurion. So, think about it this way. It's the elders, right, of the synagogue who know and teach the scriptures. That's why they're the elders. They are the ones who interact with Jesus on behalf of the centurion, and presumably they had already heard and witnessed Jesus to at least some extent. They also knew the situation with the centurion's servant, and they would also know after the fact both that his servant was healed and when he was healed. In comparison, the Gentile God-fearing centurion Never personally interacts with Jesus, at least not face-to-face. And so he's like the sort of person that Jesus describes to Thomas at the end of John's gospel. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. So who should we expect to respond to Jesus' word? Simply based on the available evidence right in front of them. And who actually does? And what's fascinating is that Jesus anticipates this event with the centurion in his sermon to his hometown of Nazareth. That's Luke chapter 4. And he wants us to interpret it in light of another similar event that happened centuries earlier, actually not very far from this place. That takes us to 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, in 2 Kings 5, we read about Naaman, the commander or general, really, of the army of the king of Syria, otherwise known as Ben-Hadad. And at that time, Syria was an enemy of the northern kingdom of Israel. And this was after the uh, Golden Age of Solomon when Israel had split between the southern kingdom of Judah, focused on Jerusalem, and then the northern kingdom of Israel. And while, as you read through 1 Kings, uh the southern kingdom had periods of relative faithfulness, The northern kingdom of of Israel was entirely, I mean entirely, faithless and either tried to worship God by way of golden calves at Shechem, for example, that's the sin of Jeroboam and and the breaking of the second commandment that is repeated generation after generation. So if you just read through there, it says, "And whatever king remained in the sins of his father, Jeroboam. So they repeat that sin over and over again. Or they tend to go even farther by outright worshiping foreign deities like Baal or one of, you know, the same gods that that the Syrians themselves worship. So after all, the name Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, is a version of son of Baal. All right. So so get the picture here. Uh, Northern kingdom Israel, really bad. So is Syria. Well, we read in 2 Kings 5 verse 1 that Naaman was held in high esteem by his king, even as God had given him military success, military victories, though presumably Naaman didn't realize God stood behind those victories. But the big drawback for Naaman was that he had leprosy. So his servant girl, a Jew that had been taken on a Syrian raid into Israel, so she's his slave, Uh, wanted him, think about that, this this Jewish slave girl wanted her master, uh, Naaman, to be healed in Israel through the prophet in Samaria, she says, in other words, by Elisha. And at this little Jewish girl's word, Naaman goes to his own king, asks for permission to go to Israel. He gets that permission, then heads off to see the king of Israel, not the prophet that the little girl had specified, but the king of Israel, and he shows up with huge gifts in tow. Now, upon meeting Naaman, the king of Israel, that's Jehoram, the son of the notoriously wicked King Ahab, rightly says that only God has the power and authority to kill and make alive. Uh, But then he wrongly assumes that the king, Ben-Hadad, is trying to provoke him to war or to some conflict through Naaman. Now in the meantime, Elisha, the prophet in Samaria, that is the Northern Kingdom area, he hears about the meeting and he sends word to King Jehoram to send Naaman to him so that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now that's not always conversion language, but in this case it actually is. Naaman will know there is a prophet in Israel because unlike Israel itself, he will be healed of his leprosy and will worship the true god so naaman shows up to elisha's residence and one can really only imagine the difference between the show of wealth with naaman in elisha's house that, that it had to be pretty stark and elisha does not come out to meet him he does not come out of his door but instead sends word to him through his servant to go wash in the jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. And as we've mentioned with other similar rituals that we've seen throughout the sermon series, this is a picture of six days and sabbath rest leading to new creation on the eighth day. Seven times in when he's finally out on the eighth, he's clean. And it points to Not merely healing of the body, as important as that was, but to right relationship with God and entrance into His temple. That is, He would be clean. Clean and unclean in in the Old Testament is always talk about whether you have death on you or not. And if you are unclean, you are ritually dead and you cannot enter into the tabernacle or the temple to commune with God. But here, this man would be ritually clean which would mean he would have entrance into God's temple. So Naaman is angered by Elisha's response, and he thought surely Elisha would speak to him face to face and do some kind of ritual or incantation over the leprosy because that's what they would do in Syria. And besides, the rivers that feed his hometown of Damascus are far better than the Jordan. So why couldn't he just go wash in those rivers and be clean? So in other words, why do I have to travel to this God and this place? I could have just stayed home. Aren't my gods just as good?" So he leaves in a rage, but his servants prevail upon him and they say, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, wash and be clean. Well, there's the pattern. Again, God has spoken to you through his prophet, listen to him, do what he says, and you will be clean. So Naaman lets go of his pride. And he does according to Elisha's word. And his flesh was restored to him like the flesh of a little child, it says. The dream of all middle-aged people. And he was in turn clean. That means that not only was, he, was his disease cured, he was declared ritually clean. And was invited to God's presence. That's what's in view. So in response, Naaman returns to Elisha and said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, which is a confession of faith sort of language. So he's now a God-fearing Gentile. In turn, he offers Elisha a gift that Elisha refuses multiple times. Naaman then asks for two mule mule loads of earth from Israel. So imagine two big oversized wheelbarrows uh, filled with topsoil. Top, topsoil because he refuses to offer sacrifices to any other God than the true God of Israel. So get the picture, he wants to take Israel with him. He wants to take Israel with him. So this is a remarkable act of faith, especially in light of how faithless Israel was at that time. So in other words, Naaman knew, like the Jews should have known, that there is no God but but God. And like Ruth, Naaman wants to bind himself to this God and to his people, and in turn, he wants to set up an altar in Syria complete with dirt from the Promised Land. The Promised Land is a down payment, really, on the whole earth that God's going to take it all back, every last bit of it. And thus, Naaman is a little light shining in the darkness of wicked Syria, the very thing that Israel was supposed to be among the nations and refused to do. Even so, Naaman recognized that he would be forced to accompany his king, Ben-Hadad, the son of Baal, when he worshipped in the house of Rimmon. That is, while he actually engaged as the son of Baal in Baal worship. And he wanted to be forgiven for even stepping foot in that place. And the sad irony is, is that a Syrian healed of his disease, cleansed of his ritual death, and welcomed into God's presence, built an altar to Israel's God, complete with dirt from the promised land, and refused to worship Baal in Baal's temple. He did this even as Israelites in the promised land were not seeking to be cleansed of their sin and were busy building and worshiping in temples to Baal in rejection of the true God. It's crazy. Elisha, in response, says, go in peace. Which is another way of saying, your God is with you, your sins are forgiven. So, I I went through that passage really fast. Let's just consider, then, why maybe Jesus puts this together and look at the overlap between Luke 7 and 2 Kings 5. So, in Luke, it's the Roman centurion's servant that is sick. And so, the God-fearing centurion seeks out Jesus, the prophet, to heal his servant. In 2 Kings, it is a Syrian Baal worshipping general who is sick, who is urged by his Jewish slave to seek the prophet Elisha for healing. In Luke, the centurion sends the Jewish elders to Jesus to ask for help. In 2 Kings, Naaman, carrying the word of Ben-hadad, the son of Baal, comes to King Jehoram, an unfaithful king of Israel, and Elisha himself intervenes. In Luke, the centurion does not think he is worthy to see Jesus or to have Jesus in his home. In 2 Kings, Naaman shows up to Elisha's home and thinks Elisha should come out to see him and do some kind of ritual for him and gets mad when he doesn't. In Luke, by Jesus' word, the centurion's servant is healed. In 2 Kings, by Elisha's word, Naaman is healed. So in Luke, it is clear that the centurion already had some faith in God and that his faith is now rightly centered on Jesus in comparison to his Jewish neighbors, maybe especially the Jewish elders, who do not realize they are spiritually blind and refuse to worship Jesus. In 2 Kings, Naaman comes to faith in God having been most certainly a worshiper of Baal and will only worship the true God in comparison to the Jews who either were actively breaking the second commandment by worshiping God with false images or by outright worshiping foreign gods like Baal in their refusal to worship the true God. So besides these kind of literary overlap uh, that are happening in this passage that you can start to see, and they're they're fascinating, you've got to ask why. What is the key to understanding the meaning of these two passages that Jesus puts together. And you find them in his sermon in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 24. Here's what he says. And he said, this is to his hometown crowd, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came in over came over all the land. That's all judgment on Israel, by the way. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And as a side, we're looking at that passage next week. We're looking at that passage next week. Because Luke directly hits at that scene in 1 Kings 17. Jesus keeps going. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Like, they're not taking just aback, like, what? They were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So, by Jesus' own words, he's comparing not just Nazareth but all of Judea with the unfaithful Israel of Elijah in Elisha's day, which eventually led to their destruction at the hands of the Assyrians. That's pretty bold. That's why they wanted to kill him. In turn, Jesus sees himself like Elijah and Elisha, two of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament who preach God's word to God's peace people, especially to kings like, say, Ahab, but who refused to listen to the prophets that God sent to them. And if the Jewish people, and especially the Jewish leadership, refused to listen to Jesus' word, the kingdom would go to people typically considered the enemies of God, to people like Naaman the Syrian or this Roman centurion. So the pattern we see at work with Jesus' disciples is those who listen to His word and believe Him and do what He says and then grow through the work of the Spirit in union with the Son into the maturity of right and good judgments, it's not unique to the Jewish people. It's for all those who will listen to Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike. So we too as disciples are called to structure our lives in light of His Word and community together with His people so that, riffing off of Colossians 1 in a description of Jesus, So, that in everything in our lives, in this community, Christ might be preeminent. But the thing is, that is so striking to me, is that Jesus compares his generation with the generation under Elijah and Elisha's ministry. And it's part of the reason why his hometown synagogue wanted to kill him. So, just consider, there was no Baal worship in the Israel of Jesus' day. And there were certainly no golden calves in the temple, though there was problems there to be sure, there were no outright idolatrous golden calves in the temple. But in Jesus' view, those two very different generations, their dispositions are the same. They're the same. So to put it in terms of our own times, you know, here in South Central Alabama, I think we enjoy the very last, the very last remnants of cultural christianity in the west where most people at least appreciate to some extent broadly christian beliefs and assumptions as opposed to say how san francisco or or portland is full-on post-christian secularism so for example it's not unusual for for pastors to be called upon to pray before ball games i i do it multiple times a year for football and basketball and when i do i know a good portion of the people who bow their heads and remove their hats don't actually pray with me even as they would claim to be christian and maybe even think of themselves as christian my point is that our setting here in butler county you know despite the obvious technical and cultural uh, differences that separate us from first century palestine which are pretty great well, it's not all that different in terms of what Jesus identifies as chiefly an issue of the heart and where our treasure is or what voices we listen to and, in turn, how we are living our lives. So it's worth being self-reflective and questioning, as all disciples are called to do. That's uniquely Christian in that sense. Christianity changed the world in this, in this sense that we become reflective over whether we're sinful or not that we examine ourselves and think through, am I actually a good person? Am I actually walking with the truth? Ancient peoples did not do that. And it's worth reflecting, is my disposition more like the Jewish elders or like the Roman centurion? Is my life defined by listening to God's Word and doing what He says, or am I like really the cultural Christian types of our county that, that see Jesus as kind of a chaplain for ball games. good to get that prayer in there. Now we can move on and live our lives. And those, those differences are not merely matters of degrees, but a matter of the way of life and the way of death. So may we not be like the Pharisees of Jesus' day who believed they were clean in their own eyes. They believed it. And they made disciples in their own eyes, but they were actually covered in filth. So let those who have ears to hear, let us hear. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the Word made flesh who has fully revealed you to us. We thank you for the Word that you have been speaking since the very creation and the foundations of this world. We thank you that you continue to speak through your Word that you have given to your people that is mightier than any two-edged sword, that cuts to the very heart and the mind and the depths of every human who will listen. Lord, may we be a people who listen to the voice of Lady Wisdom, to the very word of God, Jesus himself. May we be shaped by that. May we be a people of repentance when we fail to listen. May we walk in your ways and love you most. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.